morning and welcome to the Mount. If you are joining us for the first time, you might not know this, but we are one church in multiple locations. And when I say that, even if you did know that, you might be like, what does that mean? So let me just take a moment and just say, we are one church that meets in multiple locations. That means we have multiple physical and online campuses. We have the one here in Stafford. We have our one down in Fredericksburg. We have our Spanish-speaking El Monte campus. And then we have our online campus where over 500 families or households are viewing each and every week. We are one church in multiple locations. But not only that, we are one church. All of our campuses, whether physical or online, are united around the same vision, the same mission, the same strategy, the same desire to reach people, to be for one more, to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus to anyone and everyone who wants to hear it. And so why are we multiple locations as one church? Because we believe... We believe that if we can be the church that is mobilized, we can be the hope of the world. We want to be the church that is, it is willing to lay down their wants and their preferences and their desires and to go into their community, to go into their neighborhood and be the church mobilized so that people can see and experience Jesus for the very first time in their life. What that means is we don't just build a big building and say, come to us. No. We take the gospel, the message of Jesus, and we go into communities, into where we live, into the places we do life so that people don't have to drive 45 minutes or an hour in Nova traffic because they're already stuck in traffic anytime they go anywhere. We take the good news, these gospel hubs to them. Now, I say that, and it's interesting to look back over the past year and see how God is blessing that strategy and that vision. I don't know if you know this, but here at our Stafford campus, our attendance last year compared to this year, year over year, we are up 43% in attendance. That is incredible. And if you're excited about that, wait till you hear this one. Down at our Fredericksburg campus, our attendance is up right around 90 or 100%. A year ago... A year ago, we were having just over 100 people. Last week at Fredericksburg, we had 225 adults in the room worshiping the name of Jesus. So God is moving. Uh, and, and I love that not only this are we growing in numbers, but just this year alone, since January 1st, so just the first 12 weeks of the year, and this is gonna shock some of you, we have had 600 first-time guests come through our doors across our campuses. And I know many of you in the room or many of you watching online, you may be one of those first-time guests. And can I just say, and I don't mean this to sound awkward or weird, but we have been praying for you. We have been praying that you would be here, that you would experience Jesus for the very first time if you have not, and that you would see just how much he loves you. Not only that, not only have we had hundreds of guests with us for the very first time, but just this year alone, just since January 1st, we have had 30 people give their life to Jesus for the very first time. And we celebrate with you. We are so glad to welcome you into the family of God. And I say all this because God is moving here at the Mount. Now, here's the important part. You have a part in this. Every single one of you. First, we believe that God is moving and we just wanna kind of ride the wave that God is taking us on, but we also agree and believe that it's your faithfulness, your generosity, your financial sacrifice that allows God to move in and through the mount here in Northern Virginia. We wouldn't have campuses if it wasn't for your sacrifice. We wouldn't have staff if it wasn't for that. We wouldn't see people crossing the line of faith for the very first time and not only their lives, but their family lives and the generations to come changing because of your sacrifice. So thank you. As your pastor, I want to say thank you for your giving. 
And if you're not currently giving here at the Mount, I just wanna challenge you and say, jump in. God is doing a lot here, and I would love for you to be a part of what God is doing in and through us as we make disciples and may it for one more. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who moves in the local church. God, that years ago you ordained, you set aside the local church to be the, the vessel that changes the world, and we are just honored to be a part of that. God, I pray for all of us that we would continue to be people who are for one more with a desire to make a difference. God, we're thankful for the, the generosity and the sacrifice for the people at the Mount and what they do to further your kingdom. And we love you. Amen. Well, if you are with us for the first time, we are in week three of a series titled The Final Week. And over the course of this series, what we have been doing is we have been very simply looking at the final week of Jesus's life and some of the events and the things that he went through. And just as a recap to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, Jesus was alive for about 30 years before he kind of stepped into his, his what we would call ministry years, those, those last three years of his life. So Jesus spent those last three years of his life doing all the typical things that we think about when we think of ministry. It was him calling the disciples, the original 12 people, to kind of lay down their nets, to whatever their profession was, to, to leave it and to follow him as a rabbi. He, he healed people, he, he taught, he did a lot of his controversial teachings, his rub with the religious leaders during those three years. And so those three years were kind of the bulk of the majority of what we think about Jesus doing on earth. And then as he nears the end of those three years, he heads to Jerusalem to kind of have the final week of his life. And we read last week that Jesus kind of rides into Jerusalem and he rides into the Jerusalem with this city that normally is maybe 20 or 30,000 people. When he rides in, it's, it's overflowing, it's, it's, it's busting, it's chaotic. There's 200 to 300,000 people in the city and they've gathered for this Jewish Passover, this, this festival where everyone comes, all the pilgrims, the religious pilgrims come to kind of go through the feast and all the sacrifices and Jesus rides in on a donkey and the crowd has been expecting him, but they've been expecting him to be this, this conquering king who comes to rescue them, to, to save them, to uh, get rid of the, the Roman oppression. And so they begin waving palm branches and chanting and, and screaming and singing and he rides in. And then he, for the, next, for the rest of the week, he does some interesting things. He goes to the temple and he sees the religious leaders who have set up these tables and they're money exchanging and making a profit. And it's one of those few times we see in the gospels, the, the first four books of the New Testament, where Jesus gets this kind of righteous, holy anger and he, and he flips the tables and tells them they're not supposed to do that in his father's house. He spends some time healing some people, talking to the religious leaders and doing some teaching. And then last week, uh, Jason, our student pastor, told us about the event known as the Last Supper, or Jesus takes his 12 followers into this, this upper room moment, and, he, and it's kind of the, the calm before the storm. He takes them there, and they, they have this, this Passover meal, and he begins to, to teach through some of his most kind of in-depth, kind of low-hanging fruits, kind of the, the crutch of all of his teachings. He, he lays it all out for them, kind of his final last words to his disciples on what it means to not only live in the kingdom of God, but to depend on the Spirit's power and on his power to make a difference in the kingdom. He washes their feet to show them servant leadership. He breaks bread to explain to them that that is his body being broken. He gives them a cup and says, this is my blood. He institutes the new covenant, the new relationship with him. And then 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today. That's where we'll be. And if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to grab the Mount app, and you can find all of our scripture references and all of our sermon notes, and you can even make your own notes in there as you follow along. But we get to Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus, uh, the Passover feast is done. The people have returned back to their homes, the majority of them. Darkness has sort of descended on the city of Jerusalem. And across town... Judas, the, the, the follower who he told to leave and go do what needed to be done, Judas meets with Caiaphas, the high priest and the, the council of the Sanhedrin, and they begin to plot how they are going to capture Jesus, to take him prisoner, to arrest him. And so in Matthew chapter 26, we're going to pick up with this story. But before we get there, while you turn there, I'm just going to read the beginning of John chapter 18, verse 1, because it has a little context, and it says this in John 18, 1. When he had finished praying, so when he had finished that upper room moment, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So he he leaves the upper room, he crosses the Kidron Valley, and he goes into this garden, and Matthew picks up in 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus kind of leaves Jerusalem. He goes to this place called the Kidron Valley. Then he goes up to the Mount of Olives to this garden of Gethsemane, and he tells his 11 followers at this time, you guys stay here and pray. And then he singles out three of them, his sort of inner circle, and he takes them deeper into the garden with them. And he he wants to spend some intimate time with those three. And it continues, then he said to them, those three, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but you will. So he takes these three kind of inner into the garden with him and he says, listen, I want you to stay and pray. Just just pray, I'm sorrow, my soul is troubled. Depending on the the translation you're reading, it'll say in anguish, in agony, in trouble. And Jesus, if you've ever read any of the first four gospels, you'll recognize that Jesus is not one to exaggerate his emotions and the truth. And so we have to assume that when Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful, my soul is troubled, even to the point of death, that Jesus' internal state in this moment is very, very complex. He is in so much mental agony. He is in so much internal distress that it's beginning to affect his, his body, his breathing, his chest, his contraction. And he's just, he's feeling like he has so much anxiety and anguish and stress and emotions in this moment that he might end up dying. And so he tells them, just, just pray. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. So Jesus comes back and he's in this mental anxiety, anguish, and he comes back and says, you guys pray, and he comes back and they're asleep. Now, I I don't know about you, but if you've ever read this passage, sometimes I read this passage and I I immediately or instantly am like, guys, come on. Couldn't you get your boys back here and just keep awake and pray? What are you doing? Like, he, he, you can tell he's in trouble. You can tell he's in anguish. You can tell this is a big moment, and you're just going to go to sleep? Come on, man. That's not what you do to your homie like that. Like, don't do that. And maybe you're, like, really spiritual, and you've read this, and you wouldn't admit it out loud, and so you can think it right now, but you've had that spiritual pride moment where you've like, man, if I was in the garden, whoo, I would have stayed awake because I love you, Jesus. 
Like, I am committed, and I will stay awake. Now, before we judge these guys, let's remember, they have just finished a Passover meal. For, for context, in, in first century times, a Passover meal would usually end around midnight or 1 a.m. Not only that, as part of the Passover celebration, everyone who was a participant would have between three and four glasses of wine. So Jesus decides to have a prayer meeting at 1 a.m. after everyone's been drinking wine. Jesus, no wonder they're asleep, right? Like, like there's a lesson here about scheduling church events around this, Jesus. That's not a good idea. And so he comes back to them and he finds them sleeping. And he says, Peter, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall in temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy naturally, right? So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour or the time has come and the son of man, which is him, is being delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The garden of Gethsemane. This is probably my favorite passage in all of scripture. This story has so much in it. In fact, this story, uh, some of the reasons I love it is we could, we could talk for weeks about this actual, just only this story. Oh, what do I mean by that? There's, there's this moment where in this story, it's the only time in all of the gospels where we ever see Jesus tell, the, right? Jesus, the son of God, fully divine, fully human, has direct connection to the father. It is the only time we ever see him ask a human being to pray for him because he's struggling with something. And we could talk about how in our pride, we're so unwilling to ask others to pray for us, but here is the son of God who's intimately connected with the father and he still needs the prayer of other people. We could talk about the fact that Jesus took 11 into the garden and then pulled three out. We could talk about community, people in our lives we do life with, but those who we are intimate with, that we are connected with, who we share our hurts and our struggles and our depth with, and how we need those. Even the Son of God needed that. We could talk about a lot of different things. We could talk about how Jesus went to this garden, not just this one night, but he was there in John chapter 18, also in Luke 21 and Luke 22, and we find in other times of the Bible, he went to this garden. So what we see is Jesus, the Son of God, the guy who was intimately had this relationship with the Father, still had a consistent place where he went to pray. And how in our own lives, maybe we need a consistent place where we go to pray. We can learn so much from this story. We could learn about scheduling event at 1 a.m. after people have had wine and the benefits and the negatives to that even. But we could go on and on. There's just so much here. But I want to focus on one specific thing. I think the reason I love this story is so much is because we see a side of Jesus in this story that we never see any other time in the Gospels and we've never seen any time since. In fact, when I read this story, there's this, this side of Jesus that jumps out that feels a little bit unexpected. It's as if it, it doesn't match with his character. It doesn't match with what we've seen him do. And let me explain it this way. Look back at verse 39 in Matthew 26. Jesus is in the garden praying, and he says this. He says, my father, not our father, not heavenly father. He says, my father, if it is possible... 
May this cup be taken from me. May this cup, let this cup be taken from me. The phrase this cup is an interesting phrase in the Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, what you see is the phrase this cup was symbolic of God's wrath, God's anger, God's holy, righteous punishment for sin, sinful people or sinful things. It's, and, and when you read it in scripture, what you see is this cup was, was this, this thing that would overflow, this thing that would be poured out onto someone or something as punishment for their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience. It's not that God is angry because he's just frustrated and mad. No, it's a, it's a holy, righteous anger where God is saying, this is the plan I had for you. This is the, the will I had for you, the mission I had for you. And you have strayed into disobedience. You have strayed into rebellion. And therefore, because I am so holy, I must punish that rebellion, that disobedience. So I'm going to pour out my wrath onto someone, maybe the nation of Israel or the nation of Babylon or someone. Does that make sense? It's a wrath that is poured out. The other thing we see is that many times when it is poured out onto something or someone, an individual drinks it. An individual consumes it. They, they drink it symbolically. And it's this idea that that person is taking on all of the weight of God's wrath, all of his punishment, all of his righteous anger, and they are consuming it, and it is a part of them now. They are being punished for it. And when this happens, that individual or that person for a season becomes separated from the presence of God. Think of the nation of Israel when they were, the cup was poured onto them and they went into exile before they could come back. And so don't miss this. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, fully divine, fully human, on his knees in this garden, saying, my Father, not Heavenly Father, our Father, my Father, if there is any way, don't pour out your anger on me. Don't make me drink your wrath. It's as if he's in the garden and he, he can see into the future and know the cross and what's coming, the pain, the brutality, the hurt, the humiliation, and all the things that's coming. And he sees it and says, God, if there is any other way, if there's another option, if there's anything that I can do, please don't make this what happens. And what's interesting is that for all of his years of ministry, those three years leading up to this moment, Jesus would say over and over and over again that his mission, his purpose, his task, or the will of God for him being existing on earth at that moment was to save and rescue a sinful humanity and reconcile it back to a holy God. Does that make sense? He's saying the will of God for my life is to save humanity and to restore relationship back with God. So in essence, what Jesus is doing is he sees this, this cup, and this cup symbolizes the mission, the task, the purpose or the will of God for his life. It's what God has ordained for him. It's the task set before him. You see, at the core, the Garden of Gethsemane is a story about doing God's will. It's a story about doing what God asks. It's a story about Jesus being fully divine and fully human, struggling 
to put down his wants and his desires in order to accomplish what God wants and God desires. And I think it's a story that you and I struggle with each and every day. Right, anyone ever been there? Anyone ever had a moment where you hear God telling you something, guiding you, pushing you, stirring in you, telling you to to have a certain conversation, help a certain person to start something new, to stop doing something else, to, to change this thing about your life and you honestly just don't want to? Let's be honest because sometimes doing what God wants for our lives, following his will, being obedient is hard. It's consuming, it's awkward, it's difficult and it's frustration and it takes way more energy than just stopping and saying, God, I hear what you're saying, but what about this? I don't have time for it, I don't have the energy for it, I don't have this, so I'm just gonna do my own thing because I know in the end it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal, I'm just gonna go with it. Sometimes, Facing our cup, the mission, the task, the the decision that God has set before us is difficult. And I just wanna give you a couple things that I think we can learn from the example of Jesus here in the garden. The first one is is this, if you're taking notes. Facing our cup can be a struggle. Facing our cup can be a struggle. Listen to Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. He says this, and being in Agony. Some, some verses say anguish. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The Greek word here for agony or anguish means to struggle. But it means more of a, like, like a, a men, not like a, a physical strength type of struggle. It's more of a, a mental, internal struggle between two opposing forces. It's this idea that Jesus is in anguish. He's in agony. He is stuck in this struggle between two decisions in his head. The decision to follow what God has planned for him, to to trust in God's will, to live obediently, or to do his own will and to do his own thing. He is stuck in this. And the tension between these two decisions is so intense for him that Luke tells us that he begins to sweat drops of blood. In other words, the, the capillaries in his head and his forehead begin to pop and he begins to actually bleed from his skin. It's a condition called hematidrosis where he is in so much mental anguish over following what God wants and deciding that he begins to feel it physically. The living, breathing son of God who has been, don't miss this, fully submitted to everything God has ever asked of him up to this moment Right, God, he would say, the father tells me this, so I do it. The father tells me that, so I do it. He has been obedient, obedient, obedient. But here in the garden, we see this Jesus that we've never seen before. This Jesus who is fully human, who is struggling, who is in mental anguish between what God wants for him and what he wants. And he's torn. And to make matters worse, The very physical location he is in is between two decisions. You see, in Jerusalem, you would come out of the eastern gate, down the eastern wall, and you would go into this place called the the Valley of Kidron, where there's a brook there. And then you would begin to go up this hill to the Mount of Olives, and somewhere in the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, a thousand years before, 
when King David was in Jerusalem and his son Absalom decided to kind of overthrow and rebel and to chase him down, King David left out the eastern gate, went down into the valley of Kidron, crossed the brook, and began going up the Mount of Olives, but kept on going to safety and freedom. And so Jesus, don't miss this. Jesus is in the very same mount, the very same garden. And he can look this way and see the temple, the thing God has for him. Or he can look this way and see the escape route of David. And he's stuck between these two decisions. In fact, that valley became known as the valley of decision over time. David fled. Jesus is looking, saying, I know what you want, God. You want me to to go this way to do this, but I could easily just escape this way. And here's what I know. When it comes to following and submitting to God's will, it is hard and difficult to stay in what God is calling you to do. You can always find an escape route out. You can always find an easy exit. You can always find something that feels much more convenient. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see God's people having to wrestle with submitting to God's will. We see Abraham when he has to submit to take Isaac up on the mountain. We we see Joseph when he has to submit to ending up in prison for a long period of time not knowing if he'll ever get out. We see Jonah when he has to submit to going to preaching the Ninevites, but instead he takes the escape route out and flees the other way on a boat going the opposite direction. We see this in Mary when she has to submit that the fact that her family will not look the picture-perfect way she thought it was going to look. We see this in the Apostle Paul when he has to submit that there is a thorn in his flesh, a sin, something that bothers him, and he's never going to get past it, but he has to submit to know that it's part of God's will for his life. Sometimes facing the task or the decision or the plan will not be easy. What about you this morning? What's your cup? What's your cup? What's the the mission that God has set before you? What's the the purpose, the task, the difficult decision that you are facing? What's the choices that you are facing? Deciding between this mental anguish, what are you in anguish over? Maybe it's a conversation you need to have. And you know in your core, God is asking you to pick up the phone and call that person. But it's just too hard. Maybe it's a career decision. You've got a decision between one that's way better financially and one that's better for your family. And you're in anguish over it. Maybe it's someone that God is putting on your mind that you need to forgive. And you've got all these excuses why you can't forgive them. And it's much easier to just take the escape route out and not worry about it. Maybe it's not a a decision. Maybe it's more of just like where God has you in this moment and you have to accept it. Maybe you're in a a season of singleness and you would give anything to be married and you're frustrated and you're mad and you're in anguish and agony over why God's will for you in this season is not what you want. Maybe you're married and you've been trying to have a kid for a while and it just doesn't work and you're in agony and anguish over why God has willed it for your life right now to be the way it is. 
The list could go on and on and on. What's your cup? What's the thing that God has placed before you that you are struggling with? Let me just say submission. Choosing to submit is not always easy. Following God's will is not always easy. There's always an easier escape route. Secondly, facing our cup can lead us into danger. We, we read this verse at the beginning. Let's look back at it. John 18, 1. It says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, in Greek, the word Kidron, the way, the way they, they would name them in Hebrew uh, is the valleys were named after things. So in Greek, the translation from Hebrew, Kidron means dark, murky, or shadowy. And so picture this. The way that the temple was built in first century Jerusalem is that Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. And then the temple, the temple mount was even higher up on the hill. And they, they designed the temple mount in such a way that on the part of the temple were these big, massive lamps, these oil lamps. And they would light these oil lamps at night. And the oil lamps were positioned just a certain way. And the city was sloped just a certain way and height restrictions and all these things to where everywhere you went within the city of Jerusalem, the lamps would shine down on you. And for a Jewish person living in first century, what this symbolized is that the temple, the, the light of God, his Shekinah glory, his radiance, his, his holiness, there was not a single place you could go within the holy city of Jerusalem where God's presence would not shine down upon you, except out the eastern wall. When you went out the eastern wall, the way the, the slope of the ravine and the, the city walls and all these things that deal with geology and geometry, you would find yourself in this place called the Valley of Kidron. And in the Valley of Kidron, you could not see the temple lights. And because of this, this valley got a reputation. It became known as kind of a, a cursed place. A place that God's presence did not shine. It was dark and it was murky and it was shadowy. And because of this, this reputation, this, this place that was void of God's presence, the Israelites began to use it as a burial area. They would bury their dead there. And not only would they bury their dead there in this dark and shadowy and murky place, there was a river, the brook of Kidron, that would run through the bottom of this valley. And when they designed the temple... They designed this kind of sewage system that when they had the altar where the sacrifices were made, when they would wash off the altar to clean it, the blood would wash out through the city and it would go into this brook that was in this dark, shadowy, murky place. And in fact, most scholars will say that one of the places that David might be referring to in Psalm 27 when he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, might be this actual valley, the valley of Kidron. So don't miss this. Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem and he knows what's about to happen in his life. And he has to go into the one place they thought God's presence would not follow. And he has to step over the graves of dead people and walk through a brook filled with the sacrifice of animals. Imagine seeing all that and thinking, this is what's coming for me. It was a dark and scary place. It was also known as the Valley of Decision. Sometimes following God will lead you to a dark and scary and lonely place. Following Jesus is not always 
rainbows and sunshine and puppies and not kittens, but you, you get the point, right? <laughs> Sometimes following Jesus can be incredibly hard and lonely. Let me give you an example. About 15, 20, 20 years ago, I was a sophomore in college, and I decided uh, my whole plan was to go to law school. I was going to go be a lawyer, do some sort of international law, and I came to know Jesus during that process. And immediately upon having a relationship with Jesus, I felt God was calling me to full-time ministry. Not that being a lawyer is bad and you can't be a Christian and be a lawyer. I just felt that God's will for my life, his mission, his purpose for me was to enter full-time ministry. And so uh, to make things matter, and I'm gonna talk about this in a second, no one in my family at that time believed in Jesus. There was no faith history in our family. And so I called my father because my father was planning on paying for my law school. And I called my father and I said, Dad, I need to tell you something. He's like, yeah, what is it, son? And I said, I have given my life to Jesus um, and I, I don't think I wanna go to law school anymore. I, I think I wanna go and be a pastor. I wanna go to seminary and enter full-time ministry. And I very vividly remember my father saying, son, that is the biggest mistake you will ever make in your life. And if you make that mistake, it will break our relationship. For the next 15 years, he only talked to me four times before he died. Sometimes, God's will can be dark and lonely and scary. But choosing to submit is worth it. What about you? What's the thing? What's the decision that God has put before you that you are just wrestling with, that you are in turmoil with, that you are struggling with? What's your cup? And I... This would be a great time to just end, right, and be like, go home and think about it. And you'd be like, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. I'm going to a new church. <laughs> so here's what I want to do. Like, practically, like how do we, in the midst of these difficult decision moments where we, we know what God is asking us to do, but we also know what we feel in our heart and what we selfishly want, how do we practically obey God's will in those moments? For me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this. You might write this down. Submission is easier when we remember his past faithfulness. Submission is easier when we remember his past faithfulness. Now, this might look different for you, but let me read you Psalm 77, 11 through 13. It says this. It says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of God's works and meditate on all of God's mighty deeds. Why? Because your way, God, not mine, your way, God, not ours, but your way, God, and you are holy. What God is as great as our God? When we remember his past faithfulness, obedience in the present becomes much easier. 
Now, for you, this might look different, but for me, I know when I am faced with these difficult choices, these, these tasks that God is asking me to do or a reason he's asking me to stay or change and I selfishly want something else to help me remember his past faithfulness, I have this phrase that I tell myself. I, I ask myself, in light of what I am feeling right now, in light of this anguish, this tension, this stuck in this valley of decision that I am in, who is God and what has he done for me? And your answer will be much different. But let me just give you some insight into my life. Who is God? God is the God who before I was ever born created me in my mother's womb. He knew every intimate detail about my life. He knew exactly every hair I would have on my body. He knew exactly when the hair on my head would fall off. He knew exactly the color of my eyes, the color of my skin. He knew every gift, every frustration, every weakness, every strength. He knew the very things that I would do right now that make you say, I don't like this guy as much as I used to. He knew all of those things about me. And he chose to have me born at this moment in all of history so that I could use my gifting, my strengths, and my weaknesses for his glory. So I was born 40 years ago. I'll be 40 this summer. I was born 40 years ago to my parents. We lived in Oklahoma City. I had a great life. Like I look at pictures as a kid, and like, you know when you look at pictures of babies, all babies look happy, but not all the parents look happy? Like, when I look at pictures of my parents holding me, I can tell I was their favorite. Like, they loved me. They're not smiling with my sister the way they're smiling in pictures with me. They loved me. I was lavished with love. I was lavished with anything I want. We weren't extremely wealthy, but we weren't, like, living in poverty. We, we were a typical family that had what we wanted and had what we needed. When I hit preschool, kindergarten age, my, my parents got divorced. It wasn't a big deal. It seemed like everyone around me, we weren't believers. Everyone around me was getting divorced. And so I got the benefit of my mom moved to Oklahoma City and we got kind of this, this urban city life where as a, a middle school, late elementary kid, I could ride my bike to 7-Eleven or to the video arcade or ride over to a friend's house to play Nintendo 64 if I wanted to. But when I went to my dad's house on the weekends and in the summer, he lived more rural and had land and I could take the goat cart down to the creek and go fishing or I could take the four-wheeler into the town at the grocery store and I could do all of these things, the best of both worlds. But like I said... Growing up, I grew up in a home where faith was not a thing. We didn't go to church. We didn't believe in Jesus. We didn't even attend church at Christmas and Easter. It didn't exist for us. And so as I moved into middle school, in high school, in the early years of college, I remember very vividly feeling this emptiness in my soul. And I was seeking thing after thing to make me feel whole. I was going for pleasure for fun, for whatever joy or satisfaction I could find that would give me the thing I needed, the thing that I felt was missing. But it seemed like no matter how much it escalated, no matter how much more I did or where I went or what happened, I would wake up the next day or the next week and I would still feel just as empty, just as miserable, just as lacking as I did before anything ever started. And then in college, I met a girl at a restaurant. Her name was Kristen. She's now my wife. And we... We began to spark up a friendship. It was something about her that was different. She just had this, I don't know, joy, and I was drawn to her. The thing about Kristen, though, that I did not like is she invited me to church every single week. And I was like, crazy girl, I'm not going to church. Stop inviting me, I'm not interested, I don't wanna go. 
for months and months and months. And then at one point she stopped. And maybe it was a week, maybe it was two weeks, maybe it was three weeks, I don't remember the exact timeline. But I woke up on a Saturday and I had this feeling, I wanna go to church tomorrow. So I called Kristen and she played it cool. I was like, hey, anything that's gonna make any sense, but I think I wanna go to church tomorrow. And she's like, oh yeah, okay, awesome. Like she's not, you know, she's probably screaming by herself like later. But so we go to church and for the very first time in my life, I stepped foot in a church building at the age of 20. And the pastor gets up on stage and he's preaching through Philippians and joy. And he makes this comment, everything you are searching for in life is meaningless without finding joy in Christ. And I get in the car and on the way back to my apartment, I ask Kristen, I said, Kristen, why, why did you stop praying for me? And she said, I stopped praying, or she, I said, why did you stop inviting me? And she said, I stopped inviting you and started praying for you. And as a 20-year-old kid, sitting in my apartment that night, I realized there is a God who loves me so much that he answers the prayers of another human being. And I gave my life to him. And here's, here's the thing. Before Christ, I was not a nice guy. I was not a good kid. I was a liar, a cheater. I was a guy who barely ever told the truth. Who is God? He is the God who is my rock, my shield, my comforter, my salvation, my fortress, my everything. And what has he done? He has taken this guy who could never tell the truth about anything and allows him to stand on a stage and proclaim his truth. He is the God who took a guy who was sinful and dirty and messed up and made no sense and he didn't just erase it, he made him a new person where he doesn't even have those wants or those desires anymore. Who is God? He is the God who takes dead things and makes them new. He is a God who is faithful and consistent over and over and over and over again. And because of that, listen, when I am stuck in this moment of decision where I'm trying to decide, God, my will or your will, and I look back on what he has done and what he has done in my life, it is so simple for me to say eight simple words, not my will, but yours be done. What about you? What's the thing that you are facing? The difficult task, the choice, the thing God is calling you to, I pray with everything in me that you remember his faithfulness because God is faithful and his will is always better than yours. I am thankful that Jesus stood up, didn't take the escape route, but turned in obedience towards the city of Jerusalem. Maybe you're in that valley of decision today. God is faithful and good. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for you and who you are. Your, your consistent faithfulness to us through generations. We just need you. Maybe you're here this morning as we continue praying and you're faced right now with a decision. God is 
calling you to something. He's pushing you. He's stirring you. There's a, there's a conversation, a person, a career, whatever it is. It could be a lot of different things, and you are just struggling with it. Can I just say, as your pastor at all of our campuses, I want to be able to pray with you and for you and over you. And so just as this moment of bold confession, if you are faced with following God's will right now and you're struggling, would you just slip up your hand wherever you are? I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hands. Hands all over the room. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised, that in the moments, in the, in the midst of this valley of decision, you would show them your faithfulness in the past so we can trust your faithfulness in the future. Because God, you are good. You are good. Maybe you're here this morning as we continue praying. I don't, whatever campus you happen to be at and you're saying, man, Adam, your story is a lot like mine. If I'm honest, my life is about myself. It's about what makes me happy, what makes me feel good and all the pleasures. And I know I resonate with you because it feels worthless a lot. Can I just say God loves you and he cares about you and he wants to change you. And he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins so that not only can you just be better, but you will be made new, a new person, a new creation if you simply believe. Today, in, in just bold kind of act of obedience, at any of our campuses, if you want to make the decision to follow Jesus, to trust in him for the very first time, would you just be bold and slip up your hand? If your hand is raised, I want you to pray this with me. Father, I am a sinner. Save me. Jesus, be my Lord. Be my king. Be my everything. Father, I repent and I turn and I run to you. Make me new. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship. Our prayer team will be down front at all of our campuses. We would love for you to pray with them if something's going on, but let's stand and worship.